is an Odyssey original. This is KNX in depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Do you like roller coasters? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I kind of feel the same way. I, you know, I don't. But today was. I didn't like this one. No, because today <laughs> this was like a series of roller coaster rides on Wall Street. The Dow at one point was down over one thousand points. Now it rebounded, finished up over one hundred points. We'll go in depth into what's been pushing the market all kinds of ways. Oh, are we getting closer to war in Ukraine? The U.S. says 8,500 troops are now on heightened preparedness just in case Russian troops invade Ukraine. And this could be the end of Boris Johnson as Britain's prime minister. Reports of parties during COVID lockdown could have our allies across the ocean looking for new leadership. The Rams are a win away from the Super Bowl. They were trying to keep the uh, Niners fans out of the stadium, apparently, putting a ban on where you could buy tickets from. That idea, after a lot of press, has since been quietly stopped. We'll go in-depth into whether the plan actually could have worked anyway. Two COVID vaccine bills in Sacramento getting pushed back. The latest would add the vaccine as a requirement for kids to go to school in California, added in with all the others. And then scientists in San Francisco may be a little bit closer to figuring out why some people get the COVID brain fog. Yeah, that whole thing... Of- about uh, selling tickets only to people, and I mean, it's just weird. Just call your friends who live here and have them buy one. You know, and that's and we were talking about that before. <laughs> because no one it's knows just, anyone in San Francisco. Yeah, no, exactly. It's so far away. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's. Uh, we'll get into more about that uh, later. Let's start though with Wall Street's very wild ride. Beth Ann Bivino is uh, chief U.S. economist at Standard and Poor's. Well, this was uh, not a day for the faint of heart. Was it? No, it wasn't. And I'll have to take a, a what you said earlier. I am a fan of roller coasters, but not in the markets, and certainly not in the economy <laughs> as well. Um, I, I see it as a. I, I see it as a response to the Fed. The Fed is starting to meet. Is going to meet tomorrow, and all that inflation that we've had that's reached a forty-year high is now caught markets' attention, and that's what's driving. That's what drove the markets today. Why was that not baked in at this point, though? Because we knew it was going to happen, and then we still had all last week, and then we got today and the down, and then finally the up at the very end. Well, it's like anything you want. You know, <laughs> you want to you want to ride that. You want to live in the good times, and when it when it becomes in front, it co- goes in front of your face, then you notice. I think that the um, the response is is that the Fed. You know, you see very. Inflation now is tracking the pace is at a 40 year high at this point and inflation expectations, what the Fed watches and which and we think caused them to blink is uh, is also tracking that uh, basically at 11 year high. So I think markets now, now that the Fed is meeting tomorrow, the, the markets are now caught all of a sudden very well aware that the Fed is going to indicate as such that they plan to move. Maybe not maybe not this week, but. The fact of a, this low inflation, this low interest rate environment is going to be gone and it is going to be gone very soon. OK, so the the Fed and the anticipated Fed action, the main ingredient in, in what's happening on Wall Street uh, is the situation in Ukraine sort of a side seasoning. Uh, are investors worried about what might actually happen there? I think that there I, I 
you know, the, the United States is a very domestic oriented economy. Uh, certainly we watch what's happening a, a, across the world and it is a concern, particularly for our troops. But one thing that I think probably is going to affect people and certainly the markets is what happens to people's pocketbooks. The Ukraine, the impact on that could have mean higher prices at the gas pump and particularly, uh, and, and certainly California knows that feeling. Were we just in need of a correction anyways? Did we forget we were riding pretty high? That's one thing that I, I would also point, point to note, you know, want to point out is that markets have been incredibly high. They, I believe it was one record high after another for a number, a number of months. So you'd expect to see some correction. Of course, you know, you can say that, but it still hurts. Yeah, but why? I always wonder that. You know, people always say, well, you know, after going up so much, you would expect a correction. Why do you have to have a correction? Why couldn't it just keep going up? Well, well, you also have to have that the uh, market prices keep up with fundamentals. And if you start to see that, for example, high prices also affect businesses' costs. And that means that whatever the markets had been pricing that business is at changes with those high costs. You also notice that in the in, this, in the stock markets, now I'd note that I'm not a market analyst, I'm not a stock market analyst, but you would note that uh, those growth stocks, particularly technology, when everybody's betting on some strong growth in the future with higher interest rates might not be, or, or higher prices, it might not be as uh, as high or as as, uh, as strong as what had been earlier thought. You see what I said earlier about not liking roller coasters? I wasn't being totally honest. I like it when it goes up. I don't like the, <laughs> down, like the down part. <laughs> All right, Beth Ann Bovino, Chief U.S. Economist at Standard & Poor's. The U.S. says there are 8,500 troops on heightened preparedness. This comes as Russia apparently is moving its troops close to the Ukraine border. Let's talk a little bit about what actually the situation is. So you've got about 100,000-plus troops, uh, Russian troops, that are on the eastern flank of the border, uh, Ukraine's border. They've got some more troops. They've moved uh, to the north uh, as well. So uh, Ukraine is sort of on two sides now facing Russian troops. And uh, Vladimir Putin has been very coy about what he intends to do. He says he's not going to do anything with right. those troops. Yes, that's just uh, it's an exercise. Yeah, right? just an exercise. Mm-hmm. But it's a little suspicious to the whole rest of the world. Uh, we do have Daniel Treisman with us, political science professor ah. at UCLA, uh, focus on Russian politics and economics. Daniel, thanks for being with us. So this discussion at Camp David and the reporting goes that the president was given a variety of options, and one of them is get troops you know, to some of these surrounding countries, which is, uh, if that happens, it's a pretty big pivot from our stance earlier. Right. Well, that's right. Uh, President Biden already uh, said to President Putin that if Russia invades, there will be changes to the disposition of forces in uh, Europe. And so he's uh, backing that up with more concrete indications about what those changes might be. Uh, So definitely it's a a significant uh, move from Russia's point of view if uh, NATO stations more troops in the Baltic states countries, which are right right on uh, Russia's borders. Okay, so so let's play this out to the, uh, I guess, worst case scenario. Uh, so Russia moves some, all, you know, troops that it has uh, on the eastern border of Ukraine. They move into maybe a little bit of the eastern portion of Ukraine where they've got uh, separatists who are aligned with, with Russia, right? Uh, so they move in there. Uh, we send our 8,500 troops to uh, those Eastern European nations that were former Soviet uh, Union uh, states but are now uh, 
their own countries, but part of, of NATO. So what happens then? I mean, so we're not going to go to war, uh, an actual combat situation with Russia and Ukraine, right? Right. Uh, well, first thing that happens is these uh, very severe economic sanctions are put in place. Uh, second, uh, there may be other uh, reactions that the White House has been uh, more cautious about talking about in, in detail. But uh, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, President Biden has made clear that the U.S. is not uh, threatening to put actual U.S. troops uh, in action uh, against a Russian invasion. So then we shore up these other countries and what, back an insurgency in Ukraine, however we want to do that? That's what it looks like, uh, yes. So the uh, fortification of NATO countries on Russia's border would be stepped up. Uh, drills would be stepped up. Uh, there may be other actions uh, to, uh, to, to reduce uh, Russia's capacity to uh, invade other countries. Uh, I mean, a lot of this is, is not discussed publicly. And uh, then and there would be uh, the White House's uh, shipments of, uh, of weapons to Kiev to help, uh, help the Ukrainians fight back. Now, of course, it's all very uncertain because we're talking hypothetically about an invasion. It could be uh, just around the border area. It could be much more substantial or even some who think that uh, well, well, Russia let, could try to take Kiev. Right, but, let, but let me ask you, I was going to say, I, I mean, let's say another scenario is possible. That it, Could this all be uh, Putin's way of distraction? Because there was this British report, as you know, over the weekend, which the U.S. backed up, that there was some sort of a plot uh, to destabilize the uh, the government in Ukraine and replace it with a Moscow-leaning uh, politician. So could this all be an effort to just sort of have everybody look one way while something else is happening the other way? Absolutely. Uh, that would be standard uh, standard Kremlin operating procedure. They're trying to ratchet up the pressure, and it's... Again, I have to say, it's it's not certain that the ultimate goal is to invade. It may be to try to extract some kind of significant concession on uh, the security arrangements in Europe. Uh, but uh, yes, one one aspect of that is is this report uh, the British put out about uh, plans to impose some kind of proxy government in, in Ukraine. Now, I have to say that we really can't evaluate the credibility of that. The, the British aren't able to, uh, to provide their sources, obviously. Um, and that also could be disinformation that the Russians put out just to uh, increase the tension and uh, distract. Daniel Treisman, political science professor, UCLA, focus on Russian politics and economics. We're going to talk a little bit more about this later, but you know those at-home COVID tests you're supposed to now be able to, to yes. get for free? You've been coming the, the city looking for yeah, them. Yeah, I went over the over the weekend. I just checked out a few different pharmacies. <laughs> nobody, nobody has a single course, one. Things are going so yeah, well. Yeah, It's easier to get them, I think, in England. Yes, which is a great place to be, unless you're Boris Johnson, who's yes. having a pretty tough time right now. All these uh, reports of parties and social gatherings and things that he was doing that uh, you weren't supposed to be doing because everything was locked down. 
during 2020. Darren Adams, a presenter on LBC, leading Britain's conversation uh, radio out of London. Darren, thanks for being back on the show. So is there somebody at number 10 that just really doesn't like this guy and keeps leaking all the stuff that they were doing when they weren't supposed to be doing anything? Well, there's definitely someone who doesn't like Boris Johnson, but he's no longer at number 10. He used to like him very much indeed. Dominic Cummings, who was Boris Johnson's advisor. He was the man that got Johnson into power. He was his right-hand man. He was the man defended by Boris Johnson when he himself unbelievably decided to drive across the country with his family in his car, despite having the symptoms of COVID himself, and then preposterously (laughs) tried to claim to the nation that when he went to a beauty spot while having driven across the country with his wife on her birthday, he was, get this, testing his eyesight to see if he was (laughs) safe to drive back to London. He said, oh, but it's important because he said all of this in the Rose Garden at number 10 Downing Street, fully supported by Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson didn't break with this person, Dominic Cummings, until Dominic Cummings was rude about Johnson's latest wife. (laughs) <laughs> Carrie Johnson, as she is now. This happened at the end of 2020. They had a massive falling out, Boris Johnson and this advisor, Dominic Cummings. And it seems pretty clear, to come back to your question, that the person who doesn't like Boris Johnson, one of the people who doesn't like Boris Johnson, is uh, his erstwhile advisor, Dominic Cummings, because it is widely suspected that a, a very great deal, maybe not all, but a very great deal of this leaking is happening at his behest. And it doesn't seem to be stopping Uh, Yet, because just in the last few hours in the UK, ITV News reporting that there is yet another party which took place. How many parties do they have? The answer is 15 (laughs) currently. (laughs) 15 15 parties parties which took place under one form of lockdown or another. Nothing else to do during lockdown, but, you know, throw a party. So let me ask you this, Darren. I mean, you know, uh, you guys have an easier time getting rid of prime ministers than we do getting rid of presidents. Is Boris Johnson actually this time on the way out? Yes, I believe he is. And I think what he will do, uh, well, firstly, the background to what happens in the next couple of days, we're waiting for a report by Sue Gray, who's a civil servant, who is leading this investigation into these parties. Of course, her every time the papers go to press, her workday gets a little bit longer because <laughs> she's got another one to investigate. <laughs> Although we understand that this latest party for Johnson's birthday it, it, something she already knew about. Number 10 already put their hands up to it. So um, she's going to publish her report sometime this week. She is a civil servant. She can't make a determination of criminal wrongdoing. But incredibly, the Metropolitan Police in London have said, we're waiting for her to do that before we decide whether any laws were broken, which is bizarre. But leaving that aside, I think whatever Sue Gray says, enough people have now made up their minds, given what's already in the public domain, that Johnson repeatedly was at the very least extraordinarily uh, casual and callous about these rules at a time when people, ordinary individuals up and down the country, you know, were, were not able to visit their dying relatives because of the COVID restrictions. And so I think he's toast whatever happens. I think he might choose to resign because then he can pretend to be doing it because he wants to rather than because he's being dragged with his wife to a departing helicopter on the top of the tent <laughs> Um We got about a minute left before we let you go, but how are things now? Because we were covering, what, the other day that the, the rules are starting to be dropped because you yeah, guys are right. saying you're past the surge. What is it like over there? Yeah, the rules are changing, and they're changing in, in, in all parts of the country. So the devolved regional administrations in Scotland and Wales, they too are lifting restrictions. There is some suspicion that Johnson is lifting the restrictions 
uh, in England too quickly because it plays to his uh, his backbench supporters who never wanted these restrictions in the first place, which would be Johnson maybe doing the, the right thing for the wrong reasons, not for the first time. <laughs> Um, in terms of uh, in terms of other restrictions, it's now I think as of the 11th of February going to be possible to come into the UK without having to take a test when you arrive if you are fully vaccinated. So if you guys are planning a trip over here anytime soon, that's one thing fewer you have to worry about. As soon as you say that, I think Mike is is reaching for right. the phone. Yes. <laughs> I have points to burn. Yes, here I come. Uh, Darren Adam, presenter on LBC out of London. Darren, thanks. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. So people who are trying to buy tickets through Ticketmaster for the NFC title game between the Rams and the Niners at SoFi, they got an alert that told them only people with an address in the greater L.A. area could purchase tickets, and that had people in the Bay Area, all those 49ers fans, uh, pretty unhappy. Yeah, well, that message is now gone. It appears anyone can buy a ticket. So would a plan like that really work to keep out opposing fans? Did it drive up ticket prices and third-party seller sites. With us now, Rick Haro, who's a sports business analyst and CEO of Haro Sports Ventures. Also, Chris Lydon uh, is SeatGeek's Director of Consumer Strategy. Gentlemen, thank you both for being with us. Chris, it does sound, you know, when I first heard about it, I thought, what a lame brain idea. And, and of course, it was quickly uh, withdrawn. Would it have at all worked? Yeah, we've seen teams uh, try to do this. Actually, I think the Titans did it for uh, for their game this past weekend as well, where they'll kind of take these practices to try and limit fans kind of coming from opposing fan bases. And will it work is maybe a, a tough question to answer. But really what we see for games like this is that, you know, people come from all over the place. And it could be that they're Rams fans who are flying in from Miami or maybe somebody from St. Louis who's still a Rams fan. And so we we end up seeing is that teams often do end up doing what the Rams kind of did in this scenario. And they realize mm, I might actually be kind of hurting my own fan base just as much as I am kind of keeping out the opposing fans. Well, and plus it's not just like one site where you can buy tickets anymore, right? You right. can get them different places. So even if there's a wall on this one, you can just go to the resale market. And we mentioned prices, which are like outrageously through the roof because everyone wants to go to this game. But Hey, if you've got the money and you're from San Francisco, you're going to pay the money. You're going to come on down here. Yeah, and we've seen, for, for reference, on SeatGeek today, um, roughly 60% of the people looking at tickets for this game are in the L.A. area. So still, you know, plenty of Rams fans will be there, but we have seen 17% of fans coming from the, the Bay Area. And then another 8% from Sacramento. You guys would know better than me, but I would assume Sacramento would be mostly 49ers fans. Yeah. So, you know, that, that's a quarter, of the, a quarter of the people kind of looking are coming up from that, that northern half of California. Okay, I think we have Rick uh, Horro with us now. Rick, you there? I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah, loud and clear. So uh, when you first heard about this, uh, what thoughts did you have? Because I don't know if you were able to hear what uh, Chris Lydon was saying. You know, this has been attempted in the past by other teams, but it never seems to really work. Well, yeah, it's attempted by by a lot of people to control the audiences. Uh, and look, I, I live in South Florida, uh, where it's a tourist destination, and there may be more uh, Patriots, Jets, Bills fans at Dolphin home games in the AFC East than otherwise. And, uh, you know, owners aren't happy about that, but you can count the dollars because the seats are filled and they might not have otherwise been filled. Otherwise, that, that's one of the key criterion. Uh, you can control your audience. That's one issue that I know your guys and everybody from the secondary market worries about. But then second, 
place like SoFi with a great consumer base, it's not going to be empty seats. It's a question of who's going to fill them and what jerseys are they wearing. And it, you know, you could call it harebrained or lame brain, but it is an opportunity to see if you can get as many of your fans in the building as you can. Uh, I'm not opposed to the idea. It might work in some places and might not work in others. Yeah, well, we had the problem. The Rams had the problem weeks back. There were so many Niners fans, and it was so loud. And it's, you know, it's obvious that they're outcrowding us. So I guess you can do what you can. But then the story gets out, and it goes all over the place today from, like, a press perspective. Does this do you any favors? Because then it seems like you're having trouble filling your seats with your people because people are coming from out of town. Yeah, well, the bottom line, I think, at this point, and it goes from Sean McVay elsewhere, is, uh, I don't know if they would rather win the battle of who is the likable team in the press or wins the battle of who has the most crowd noise to drown out signals when somebody's in an end zone. So, you know, there are a lot of issues that you can debate the merits of and see what's fair and what's not. And trying to control the audiences is a good way to do it. There are many teams who have a season ticket waiting list that goes through the roof and you really can't get people in from out of town. You you can have some reselling, but, uh, you know, in, in a lot of the, tour, the destinations, it's not as big an issue as it is in tourist destinations like uh, my hometown. Uh, like it was in Tampa yesterday. I'm here in Tampa today. I watched your Rams play really well. A lot of Rams jerseys. I've been watching a lot of the Tampa Bay Buccaneer fans and the Brady fans today. A lot of uh, bad posture, a lot of moping around, a lot of end of the world. So congratulations to you, folks. Rick Horos, sports <laughs> business analyst, CEO of Horos Sports Ventures. And uh, Chris Lydon, SeatGeek's director of consumer strategy. Whether you're there or on TV, most of the state will be watching. Well, lots of attention will be on two bills in Sacramento dealing with COVID vaccines. Now, one would allow kids as young as 12 to get a COVID vaccine without parents' consent. We talked about that last week, actually. We did. The other one that will be introduced would add the COVID vaccine to the list of required vaccinations for K-12 through students. And pushback from parents expected for both. With us is Democratic State Senator Scott Weiner from San Francisco, author of the bill that would let the kids as young as 12 get vaccinated without parent consent. Also supports the bill making the COVID vaccine requirement uh, for the school kids. Senator, thanks for being with us. So, yeah, we did talk about your bill and the basics of it the other day when it was um, put into print. Let's take the line that a lot of your Republican colleagues are running with and, and some parents out there saying, you know what this is? This is another example of Democrats stepping in and, and taking the parents right out of the equation. Um, yeah, I, I don't think that's uh, uh, true. Parents still have to consent for the vast majority of health care for their kids. Um, you know, the, the, let's be clear. We want parents to be involved in their kids' health care uh, decision. And with or without this bill, even if we had this bill, large majority of teenagers are going to talk to their parents about getting a vaccine. But unfortunately, not all teens are in a position where they can communicate with their parents. Uh, and there are parents who are just adamantly opposed to the vaccine, even though that means that a teenager may not be able to play sports anymore or be in the band, may not be able to go to their friend's house, uh, may not be able to keep their job because of the vaccine requirement. And so these kids, these teenagers, uh, if they can't talk to their parents about it, uh, they should be able to protect their own health and keep their classrooms safer by getting a vaccine. And to be clear, we already allow today 
12-year-olds and up to get the HPV vaccine or the Hep B vaccine or birth control or even an abortion without talking to their parents. This is building on that existing structure. Well, and, and therein, I guess, lies the problem for some parents. Uh, and, and they would probably argue back to you that even the ones that you've just articulated are things that are questionable and that a 12-year-old doesn't have the capability of deciding for him or herself uh, that something is medically necessary. Well, uh, that's a balance that uh, California has struck for quite some time. And uh, just to be clear, that's why we went with 12 years old in this bill. Someone could argue, should it be 13? Should it be 14? And that's a conversation we can have. Uh, but right now, California does have defined 12 years as uh, an age at which uh, kids can start making more decisions for themselves. But fundamentally, whether one thinks it should be 12 or 13 or 14, that, that's a debate we can have. But the question is, should a kid who wants to protect him or herself uh, from a potentially deadly virus um, wants to be able to play sports and go over their friends' homes and, and do all the things that being vaccinated allows you to do, should they be basically shut down because their parents don't want them to get the vaccine? And we have a network of teenagers, activists, they're amazing, across the state who have horror stories not just for themselves, but for their friends, and who are really working hard to try to expand access to vaccines for teenagers. All right, let's talk about the other bill from um, Dr. Pan that, that you are in support of. This is about um, adding it to the list uh, for the student vaccines. And, you know, there is the vaccine requirement that's out there, but this is going to do what? It's going to close off the ability for anybody to have the personal belief exemption when it comes to it, Right. right. Yeah, so th this uh, legislation that Dr. Pan is leading on um, will align the COVID for, for school children will align COVID vaccine requirements to be the same as measles and other vaccine requirements. So about uh, six years ago, I believe, California eliminated the personal belief exemption uh, for measles and other basic uh, school required vaccines. It's a massive loophole because it basically means there's a requirement, but anyone can opt out, and that makes it a fake requirement. And we were seeing increasing numbers of families opt their kids out of getting measles and, and other vaccines. And so guess what? Measles, which was a virus that we had not eradicated, but all but eradicated in this country, started surging back. And that is a very serious illness. And so we removed the personal belief exemption for measles and other vaccines, but it didn't apply to future vaccines that were placed onto um, the list of required vaccinations. So that's why when the governor uh, announced that COVID vaccine was going to go onto that list, the personal belief exemption loophole came roaring back. And so we need to remove that and be clear that when we say that certain vaccines are needed to keep schools safe and to keep teachers and kids safe, we mean it. The uh, prospects for both bills? Um, well, the legislature has a strong record of passing pro-vaccine pieces of legislation, uh, but these bills are always hard fought because the um, anti-vaccine, uh, the anti-vaxxers are very, very loud. They do not represent a majority, not by any stretch. They're a loud minority, but they are loud and they're organized and they're intense and they make threats and they come and they assault, they've assaulted at least one of my colleagues. And uh, and so that makes it very contentious. Uh, so I, I think both bills 
have a path to be passed, but it's not guaranteed. And we're going to have to make the case that this is so important in terms of public health in California. Are you guys ready for more of that backlash, given the politics, given the the thoughts about this particular vaccine? Uh, Well, I mean, the the tragedy, and it it is such a tragedy, is that vaccines, which didn't used to be a partisan issue, right? When we when we tackled polio um, or any of the other horrible diseases that we developed these amazing vaccines for, um, it was never a partisan issue. It was bipartisan. And unfortunately, vaccines have now become a partisan issue. And that is a tragedy because it is harmful to public health and people die as a result uh, of, of the anti-vaccine movement. Uh, and so, you know, it'll be, yes, it'll be intense. I've already been yelled at about this bill. <laughs> um, not so much in San Francisco. San Francisco is intensely pro-vaccine, as is L.A. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, there, there, of course, will be um, contentiousness around these bills. Democratic State Senator Scott Weiner from San Francisco. Senator, thanks. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The at-home COVID tests now available online through the federal government. You don't have to pay anything. You just uh, wait till they show up. You can also pick them up at the pharmacy and then get reimbursed through your insurance company. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I'm laughing. It's not as easy <laughs> no, as we say. Because no. if, if the words insurance company <laughs> yeah. are in the sentence, yes. it's not going to be like, you know, snap your fingers. Well, it's not like that, but, but you really can't find them yes, I, also I, that I, also that I, I, i've for the past few days i've made it a mission to check out various pharmacies and nobody has them nobody seems to know when they are going to get them lindsey dawson is a health systems and insurance coverage expert at kaiser family foundation lindsey you've been keeping track of at-home testing which may be an easy job because there's nothing to track Well, you're right. It does seem that some people are continuing to have real difficulty finding these tests in stores. Um, If you're walking to your local pharmacy, it's likely hit or miss whether you're going to find the test you're looking for. However, the good news here is that based on online searches I've been doing, it does seem like over these last few days, there's better availability from online retailers. Okay, so where are you looking? So if people need them, they can go and look for some. So today I saw pretty good availability at both Walmart and Amazon, Um, and the timetable for test delivery looks like it's been improving too. Last week it looked like it would be over a week or even two weeks to get a test, and now it looks like you can get within that week window. Okay, but uh, I think, Mike, you were pointing out before we went on the air that that you can get them quicker, apparently, through Amazon than the government one, where you go online and and they send it out allegedly within about like 12 days. And then the post office says it may take another six days to turn it around. Yeah. So the week window is right for the for the the orange box test is the one I term it. That's the Amazon one. Uh, that looks like it can be here at the earliest, like next Monday. But then you're right. If you're doing the government one, we're just still all waiting. We ordered them when when the window opened, and then right. I guess we're going to see when those those finally show up. Yeah, I ordered them as well. Um, I haven't seen mine. I did hear the White House press secretary say that some people have started to receive their tests, um, and we should hear this week how many people have actually requested them from that website. But is the problem, uh, Lindsay, that, uh, you know, in other countries, and we've had people on from other countries who tell us how easy it is to get 
at-home tests, and for free, uh, or very low cost, uh, in many Western European countries. Is it because that those countries have authorized many, many more kinds of at-home tests, and the FDA in this country has been really difficult to approve these tests, so we don't have that many different brands available? Yeah, there are really two main reasons why we've seen better availability and cheaper tests or free tests in other countries. One is exactly what you point to, that there are more manufacturers and so there's wider availability um, and competition can drive down prices. And then the second piece is that in the U.S., we really invested upfront in vaccination. So after some initial hiccups, um, most people could probably find a vaccination that was fairly convenient to them and free of charge. And we didn't do that with tests. Now we're playing a bit of catch up and investing in testing and infrastructure and actually test manufacturers in different ways. They've been talking about all these, you know, extra orders that they made and we'll get into the stores. When do we think that those could be here? Because let's say we've got another month of uh, Omicron as the downward slope goes. Are we going to be in wash in tests in May when we might not need the tests? Well, we'll have to see. Um, one thing we've learned from this pandemic is that it's a little hard to predict what we'll need um, a month or two out. Um, certainly, we've been seeing new manufacturers get through the EUA process, which could bring more tests to market, um, regardless of what happens with the um, with the the, uh, the tests um, purchased from the existing manufacturers. But you know what? What Mike just said, it occurred to me because it brought back a, a memory. That that's exactly what happened in this country. You know, he was talking about: Are we finally going to get these at-home tests when we don't really need them? In fact, that did happen, did it not? Uh, there were tests that were starting to be developed and started to show up at pharmacies, and then before the Delta uh, wave came along, uh, people and the vaccines came out. People stopped getting tests, and some of the companies stopped making them. Yeah, um, that's exactly what happened. And, you know, you could see from the financial filings of these companies that they just weren't sure how to gauge um, the demand that these tests were going to have. And they have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders. Um, and so they didn't want to have a lot of products sitting on store shelves. And in part, these upfront federal investments and advanced purchasing helps to solve this sort of challenging position that the test manufacturers were, were in and assures that if there is continued demand for tests, um, that they're going to be there and that the manufacturers are able to produce them. Lindsay Dawson, health systems and insurance coverage experts, Kaiser Family Foundation. Well, some people who have recovered recovered from uh, COVID say they haven't been quite the same in the head. They've complained of what is being called brain fog. Now, a small study out of UC San Francisco offering some clues as to what might cause it. Mystery may lie in cerebrospinal fluid. With us is the study author, Dr. Joanna Helmuth, the UC San Francisco's Memory and Aging Center. Doctor, thanks for being here. So let's get into that in just a second. But first, can you give us a baseline, you know, brain fog descriptor? Because maybe it means different things to different people. Is it like a case of the Mondays, I'm tired? Or is it like I can't concentrate on, on whatever task I'm really trying to, to nail down here? You know, what people notice is that their brain is not working like it used to. You know, we really categorize these as executive functioning symptoms, which it means it's really involving the organizing and planning parts of the brain. So what people often tell me is I have difficulty remembering recent things. But when I ask them if they're given enough time or clues or cues, those memories tend to come back to them. They also have difficulty coming up with names or words. Difficulty keeping information in their head. 
you know, as they're walking from one room to the other. Um, and things like processing speed, the brain just isn't quite working as fast. And so, you know, what we find is that it, these are very consistent symptoms that we're seeing after COVID. And people are saying, you know, I used to never have these kind of issues before. I know these are a new problem in my life that are really impacting my ability to work even or, you know, to function in daily life. So is this because the virus itself uh, migrates, it finds its way into the uh, brain and is, is there? Is it because of inflammation in the body that's affecting perhaps the blood flow to the brain? Is it a combination of that? Is it something totally different? No, I think that's that's a great question, and that's what we're trying to answer in our study. You know, I think that um, there are thoughts that maybe the virus directly could do some damage. Um, the data now are pretty mixed about whether the virus regularly gets in the brain. There are some studies that show that even people who are very, very ill in the intensive care unit with COVID who have really bad neurologic issues in their brain, that only, you know, a fraction, you know, of those individuals actually can we find virus in the brain, maybe six or 7% of those people. So I think that we don't know that the virus regularly gets into the brain. But what we do know is that people who get COVID on average tend to have an activated immune system, that their immune system is, you know, acting in a lot of ways, even after the virus has left the body. And one of the things we're exploring is, is that um, environment in the brain as well? Do we see inflammation in the brain as well? Or are we seeing antibodies that are directed to the brain? And so that's something that we're looking at now as a follow-up of the study that we published. Okay, so what did you find in the spinal fluid samples that gives you clues to any of those, you know, avenues that we can go down? Certainly. So, you know, we were just asking the basic question. If we do a spinal tap on people who got COVID, that was confirmed COVID, um, who are reporting new cognitive issues, how does that compare to the spinal fluid of people who got COVID who said, you know what, my thinking memory is great. I'm having no cognitive problems. And I'll step back and say, like your doctor can do basic blood work if you're, if you're ill, we can also do kind of basic tests on cerebrospinal fluid. And so they don't tell us exactly what's going on, but they give us some general indicators of further studies that we need to do. Do people, so, go, I'm go sorry, ahead. go ahead. Oh, I was going to ask, is there any noticeable difference yeah. between people who have been fully vaccinated, and I'm going to use three doses uh, of the messenger messenger RNA vaccines uh, for the definition of fully. Uh, is there a difference between those who are fully vaccinated and those who have not been vaccinated at all when it comes to brain fog? Yeah. Well, you know, this was a small study. It included both vaccinated and unvaccinated people. And I'll tell you that these were all people that got COVID prior to vaccinations being available. So they got COVID, developed the cognitive issues, and then the vaccinations were only offered after um, words because they, they just weren't available publicly yet. But what we found was that 77% of the people with COVID who had cognitive changes had abnormalities in their cerebrospinal fluid, whereas 0% of the people who had COVID with no cognitive changes had abnormalities. And again, these are small numbers. We had 13 in the group with cognitive changes and uh, only four people in the group who had COVID without cognitive changes. So very small numbers, but it's 77% is a striking number. And we didn't notice differences between the people who were and were not vaccinated. Interestingly, if it's, you know, systemic inflammation, does that make sense to you, theoretically? Yeah, you know, it's, you know, the, the abnormalities that we found kind of point generally in the direction of the immune system. They suggest either inflammation or abnormal immune responses in the body and the brain or just within the brain itself. 
Um, and we certainly know that other viruses that can cause cognitive disorders can be associated with similar changes. So right now what we're doing is we're taking those samples and we've done further analysis to really understand exactly what these abnormalities are so we can target that more, maybe even find therapies that already are approved by the Food and Drug Administration that might be helpful. You know, I was going to ask because COVID, of course, hasn't been around that long, but it's been around maybe long enough that are you getting a picture about prognosis? You know, is this something that once somebody has brain fog caused by COVID, are they going to have it for the rest of their lives? Well, you know, I'm, I'm a cognitive neurologist, so I only see patients in my clinic who have thinking and memory changes or a very kind of very subspecialized field. And so I've been seeing people for almost two years now with cognitive changes after COVID. Uh, and I can share my anecdotal observations. So this is not driven by quantitative data, but just what I've noticed. Some people improve with time spontaneously over months. Some people stay the same but I've not seen anybody get worse over the past two years. Um, uh, you could ask questions, who are the people that are getting better? Um, you know, my general observations that these tend to be younger people, because again, I'm seeing teenagers with these cognitive changes, 20, 30, 40 year olds. They are, you know, my general observations is that these people are tending to be more likely to improve spontaneously compared to the older individuals, but I've seen some older individuals um, improve as well. So I think that we have a lot more to learn um, by studying these problems over time. Do you treat them with anything? We have no known treatments now that uh, will do anything. There's some anecdotal, uh, you know, medications that people have been trying. Um, things like fluvoxamine. I've heard a number of reports from my patients and otherwise that people are actually getting worse symptoms with trying these. So there's things that we can throw at this problem, but we have no idea if they work. Uh, I've heard equal reports of people getting worse. And stepping back, you know, I studied cognitive changes that were associated with a different virus, HIV, prior to this pandemic. And so we had decades of research in that field. And none of the medications that we've just tried have worked in that disorder either. And so I think that's something that we need to do is do much more in-depth studies. We need to really target exactly what is contributing to this and not just kind of generally the immune system as a whole. But I'm hopeful um, that we'll make much more traction in this um, than we have in other viruses that cause cognitive disorders. Dr. Joanna Helmuth, UC San Francisco's Memory and Aging Center. Doctor, thanks. That's in-depth for today. Back tomorrow.